From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, I want to say thank you to you for your living word. And we thank you that your living word, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And now his word lives again for us. And we pray that you, Lord God, would find your mark in us this morning. And that your word would impact us and change us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, I want to welcome you if you're visiting this morning. You catch us in week two of a series called Famous Last Words, and this is our lead up to, to Easter, and we're considering those words spoken by Jesus upon the cross. And last week, Rick uh, spoke on very well, I thought, Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I came away from that with, with this incredible new thought for me, and that was this, that ignorance is not innocence. Because Jesus prayed, Father, Father, forgive them. They needed forgiveness. Why? Because they know not what they do. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know that they were crucifying God himself. They didn't know that. And they needed forgiveness. So that ignorance is not innocence. And I thought, wow, that is a profound and challenging thought. And this week, I've, I've, I actually unusually for me prepared this word way at the beginning of the week because I was, I was up country at a, uh, another organization's board meeting that I'm, I'm on. And, and, and all week I've been thinking about this. And I've been thinking about those famous last words. And, and, and funnily enough, do you want me to put this down, guys? Can you see me all right? Thanks, Ian. Um, and... Uh, I actually, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I've actually thought about what would I like to say just before I died. Have you ever thought about that? Is that very morbid and perverse? But I've thought, well, I, you know, I want to die well. I want to die sort of, you know, I don't want to sort of just go like that, you know. It's like those comics when I was a kid in the 60s, you know. We're in, in boys' comics, there were, there were always sort of lots of Second World War stories. And I noticed some things, you know. The, the, the Japanese soldiers, when they died, they always went, Aye! It was really uncool. And uh, the German soldiers, they always went, Arr! And then the, the British were the coolest. Because they always, when they died, they went, Arr! Sort of like Elvis Presley, you know, kind of a, Arr! Like that. Just like that. Just try that. One, two, three. Arr! So if you're going to choose one of those, I'd go for the, you know, the Elvis Presley thing. But, you know, famous last words. I think one of my favorites, Rick made me laugh last week with one, of his, one or two of his, but I still like Oscar Wilde, who uh, on his deathbed said, either that wallpaper goes or I do. <laughs> I think that's a fantastic one. I'll probably just say, no, did I leave the gas on? Or something like that, you know. I, I want to be ready for that moment. And where I am at the moment, I want to just, with my dying breath, say, Lord have mercy. That's where I want to, that's what I want to be. But anyway, famous last words, Jesus on the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why 
have you forsaken me? A thousand questions. We all have questions. In fact, this morning we've got a lot of our alpha people up there on the balcony. It's just say, oh, everybody shout, who's, say hello if you're alpha. Hello. We did that quite well. Why don't we shout back? Hello. Hello, you guys. You know, one of the things about the Alpha course is that you get to ask questions and you get to discuss things. We all have questions. I have questions. And sometimes those questions are intellectual, you know. Sometimes they're just, we need information. Tell me this again. I I don't understand this. I I need some information. Sometimes they're philosophical, uh, the questions we have of God. But more often than not, the questions we have of God are this. It's quite frankly when life happens. Life seems to be going okay. And then something, some catastrophe, some, some crisis, some disaster, something untoward, something we were not expecting hits us full on in the face. And there is always in that moment a why. And for some of us, we can chew on the why over and over and over and over and over again. It just goes round and round and round and round, like some kind of demonic loop. And we we turn to our friends, our neighbors, our our Christian brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Jesus. And and, and we we try and get answers from them. And, And to be honest with you folks, and I've done this myself, it's all too easy to, to fall into some easy answers, some easy trite kind of responses. The first one might be, it's your fault. It's just your fault, you know. It's the choices you've made. And sometimes that can be incredibly insensitive, but it may hold a seed of truth. There may have been warning signs. There may have been things that you could have done. There may have been, you know, some, some choices that you made which, which you just didn't want to hear good advice about. And now it's like it's God's fault. It's all gone wrong. Why didn't God stop me? Why didn't God do... You know, well, hey. But at the moment, you know, if you are sitting with a friend going through one of these great life crises, that may not be the right moment to start apportioning blame, they may just see, need to, to have you sit and listen and empathize. That may be the most loving gift you can give them in that moment. The second thing that Christians will often put out is, it's the devil's fault. You know, I, I'm always a little uneasy with that one, quite frankly. I, I just want to spend the least amount of time possible thinking about what the devil might get up to. I, I'm just not interested in it. But the scriptures do say we do have an enemous enemy. We do have an adversary. We do have one who is out there to try and destroy us, to undo us, to trip us up. There is one whose mission in life is to wipe out, to destroy and to disable the people of God. And who knows, it may be that something like that had happened. And then the third one, possibly the most difficult one, is this. It's God's will. It's God's will for you. And if you're in pain to hear that this is God's will for you, it is a very difficult thing. Because as we come home to Father and receive his love and his welcome and his embrace, as we we receive his, his mercy and begin to believe that he loves us and he has accepted us and has forgiven us and has welcomed us home, it is very hard when the wheel drops off our life and we get told it's God's will. 
And I've given this a lot of thought this week because it is one of those foundational questions that believers struggle with. I don't know whether I've got any easy answers and I'm probably going to disappoint some of you, but I do want to try and wrestle with this a little bit this morning. And as I was talking to my wife Fliss about this, I was reminded of an incredibly painful uh, and actually, with hindsight, powerful example of, of what might be happening in this kind of situation. As uh, many of you know, we have four children. They're all grown up now. And uh, my son Samuel, when he was 18 months old, he developed mumps. There was a bit of a mumps epidemic going around, and he was very, very poorly with it. He was so ill, and his face all swelled up. He was actually unrecognizable. It was very disconcerting. And bless his heart, he was a chirpy little chappy and he, 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 you know, he wasn't a difficult child when he was ill. He tried to be, you know, he would try and play and he was just really sick. And then he got scarlatina on top of it and it got really bad. And this ended up with suddenly one morning, we, we began to notice that his jowl was really beginning to grow. And so we were worried he was running a fever and, and was not himself at all. And so we took him to the doctor and the doctor said, you need to get down to the hospital straight away. I think he's got an abscess there. It's a rather large one. We need to deal with this. So suddenly, you know, the adrenaline kicks in. There's the, the natural concern and empathy and fear and anxiety of a parent. And suddenly it's like we seem to be in what could be a potentially dangerous, life-threatening situation for him. So at 18 months, we're rushing him down to the hospital. And they take it very seriously indeed. And it's the size of a, a good-sized golf ball, apparently. Uh, and if it was to, well, I don't know, I didn't even want to go there. But anyway, they, 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 they said, we need to take him straight down to theater now. Uh, and he's still, he's sort of cuddling up to Fliss. And, you know, he's, I'm making him smile and I'm tickling him and I'm playing with him. And he's, you know, he's responding to that. But he's very, very ill. Anyway, they pre-med him and they give some, some sort of um, you know, sedative and what have you as they do. And, and, and it was, seemed to be taking a bit of time to... To, to kick in, to be honest. Anyway, it came to that point where he had to go off down to, to have the, this, this little operation. And he absolutely went ballistic in a way I'd never seen him before. There was no way he was going to be peeled away out of his mummy's arms. 18 months. And it was the most desperate, the most distressing thing that Fliss and I, in fact, when we were talking about it at breakfast this morning, we both started welling up again. It was just the most terrible thing. Some of you parents will, will have had a similar kind of experience and know what, what, what I mean by that. Anyway, Fliss said to the nurse, she said, this is, this is absolutely terrible. Can we not come down with him at least some part of the way? So the nurses, they, they said, okay, we'll put these on. And we had to sort of half gown up. And we, we walked him with, with, with Samuel in Fliss's arms down through these back corridors, down the lift, down to the operating theater. And we walked along this corridor towards the operating theater. And then there was a line, I remember. I think it was a green line. And they said, you can come thus far, but no further. And so we went right up to the line. And at that point... We had to hand him over. And I, I can see it now. The look of desperation in his eyes. It was the why question. 
He was ripped away from us and carried quickly, screaming and struggling down the corridor and off into the operating room. Looking, reaching, desperate, desperate. Why? <laughs> 30 years ago, and it still catches me now. What we couldn't tell him because he was 18 months that if he didn't have this operation, it was, it, it was threatening to his life. We couldn't tell him that. You know, Jesus on the cross, when he, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's an interesting question. It's actually drawn from a psalm, Psalm 22. Last week, Rick said something else that gave me pause for thought. He said, no, no time did Jesus lose control. Even in his dying words, he's remembering and, and quoting scripture. You might like to look at Psalm 22 this afternoon if you would like a little homework. It's fascinating in the light of Jesus' death on the cross at Calvary. A why question came out of the Savior's mouth. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But actually in these moments of, of great crisis where we're told or we suspect that God's hand may in it be in somewhere, actually a verse of scripture now comes to my mind. It's out of 1 Corinthians 13. It says this, for we know in part, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. But then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now it's easy for me to say because I've been walking with Jesus for many years now. It's not so easy when you're new to the faith. But there does come a time as you walk through life where you become a little easier with those why questions. You, you get to that point where trust, you know, in the scales of the whys and the doubts, which might be on this side, and the, the trusts and the faith, which might be on this side, the scales begin to tip. And it's all about experience. It's all about beginning to believe and see God's hand at work in your life so that when something untoward happens, you begin to dare to believe that even though you don't see it all, you, if you like... See it as a poor reflection, or as it says in the old 1662 version of the Bible, through a dark, through a glass darkly. I like that imagery, actually. You know, I, you know, just like dirty glass really gets me. The, the staff will laugh. We've got a lot of glass in this place, and the poor. I'm the bane of Ray, our caretaker's life, because if there's fingerprints over the glass, I sort of get all fidgety, and he's they're always cleaning the glass. You know. But, you know, glass is supposed to be clear. And, and I like that imagery that the window's dirty and, and we have to squint through it. And we, we can see, but we can't quite see well enough. And that's what Paul is kind of conjuring up here in this little passage. We know, we, we know, but we don't know it all. But he says that one day you will understand. Just as I hope today Samuel has forgiven us for that ghastly experience in the hospital in Nottingham, because now he understands. But he didn't understand then, 
And there was a desperation in all of that. But Jesus' question is interesting. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, Rick, in graphic terms last week, alluded to the process of crucifixion, the the torture, the turmoil, the uh, bullying, the beatings, the floggings with the cat of nine tails. They invented that, not some pirate. Then the, the dragging the cross with an open back, a flayed back through the streets of Jerusalem, not being able to complete the task because of the weakness that had come upon him because of the beatings, getting Simon of Cyrene to help him, then the actual crucifixion itself, and then being hoisted up on the cross three hours between midday and three in the afternoon. But Jesus said nothing. He could cope with the injustice of it all, the unfairness, the false accusation. He could cope with the torture. He could cope with the floggings. He could cope with the rejection. He could even cope with the crucifixion. But what he could not cope with was when the Father's presence was lifted off him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's presence, as we're fond of saying in this church, is everything. It's everything. Jesus could cope with everything this life could throw at him, but that he could not cope with. And those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a while will know what I mean when I talk about God's presence. Those of you who are just beginning to to engage with God and beginning to know him through his Holy Spirit, those of you who maybe did the Alpha Weekend a couple of weeks ago with Dennis and experienced God for the first time, this is new to you. As time goes on, once you've tasted the glory of heaven, once you've tasted the presence of God, it becomes like the most potent of drugs. You go into withdrawal symptoms when the presence of God is not there. And the Son of God himself said, Why have you forsaken me? Now this morning I have a brief opportunity, and I'm, again I'm preaching through a, a glass darkly, I don't know what I'm talking about, folks. One day we will know. But the Word of God does enable us to catch something through this murky glass of what God was about and what he was doing. The serious student of scriptures, those who are, 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 are keen on the truth, keen of, 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 of in, in actually engaging with the reality of it all, there is, there is something to learn, something to discover, something to embrace and engage with. So for the next 12 minutes or so, I'm going to engage with the father's story, put his side of the story. And I feel weak need at the awesome presumption of the task, but also the, the importance of the task. So here's a little bit of the father's story. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, that great book written to the church in Corinth by the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest minds that that the Christian church has ever known. He said, amongst other things, God made him, that is Jesus, 
who had no sin to be sin for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus, as we sung this morning, was the perfect sacrifice. He was both God and man, Emmanuel, God with us. The only being of his kind, God and man, melded into one. Fully human, but fully God. Perfect, righteous, holy, clean. Clean. He made Jesus, this perfect God-man, sin. Made him sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There was a substitution. Us for him. The wrath of God was directed towards us. The judgment of God. The the. the the appalling consequences of sin were directed towards us because we were the sinners. We were the, we were the ones that had let our wise reject God. We were the ones that had turned our back on God. We were the ones that, that were careless of the creator even though we are created beings. But God in his great kindness His mercy took the initiative and picked up the price himself in his son Jesus. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, when you sin, you're actually rejecting God. You're saying, you know, I I, thank you, but no thank you. And that rejection of God that so many are set upon, a cause of action that excludes God, that marginalizes him, that shoves him beyond the far horizon, that exercise which so much of humanity is involved in actually eventually becomes the very judgment of God itself. Because at the moment it's as if God is pursuing us in spite of our sin. God is, this is a season, an age, an era if you like, where God pursues us in order to save us from ourselves. Just like, you know, uh, I have a lovely little granddaughter, she's 18 months and sometimes when we're down the park she thinks she can walk on water. And she'll go running towards the lake. In fact, I'm determined by the, uh, I'm sure that by the look on her face, she thinks she can walk on water, run across the lake and pick up a goose. (laughs) Except she thinks it's a duck. There is a difference. Believe me. And at those moments, we have to chase after her. She doesn't want to be caught. You know something? The perversity of it all is that humanity does not want to be caught by God. It thinks it can walk on water. But God chases after. God isn't trying to look cool. God isn't trying to worry about what he might sort of look like as he's ungainly, as any mother down there. These lovely, many gorgeous young mums here. But when, when your child is in danger, you don't think, oh, well, I might, you know, muck up my designer jeans and tread in some goose poo. You know, it's not the issue. In an ungainly and desperate manner, you pursue your child to save your child. That is what God is doing at the moment. But humanity is shrugging God off. Have you shrugged off God? Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Have you ever shrugged off God? So many backs, so many cold shoulders. But in time, the tragedy of it all is that the rejection of God, the shrugging of God, becomes the very judgment of God. Suddenly you get your way. Suddenly the toddler who is running headlong into disaster looks over its shoulder and there is no mother chasing him. Suddenly the, the, the badly behaved two-year-old, and we've all had them and seen them and know them, who really wants his way and wants to throw a tantrum and this, that and the other, suddenly looks round and they've got what they wanted. They wanted to be away from God's presence. And Hello? Hello? <laughs> Hello? Is anybody there? The rejection of God becomes the judgment of God. Eternity without God. You know, forget about lakes of fire and all the rest of it. We can spend time talking about that too. But that single fact alone, the absence of God in your life, whether you recognize it or not, is a terrifying factor. God, no, may God not grant you your wish if you're on the run from God from now. You see, the removal of God's presence is the ultimate judgment on sin. The ultimate consequence of sin is that God backs away forever. You get your way that final time. You've succeeded. You've shrugged God off for the rest of eternity. You see, he doesn't force himself on us. He doesn't rape us. Some would say, well, why doesn't he? It seems so, well, oh, come on, please. You haven't grasped that free will is a wonderful and precious gift. Come on now. Do the work. Think it through. Come on. Work it out. And what happened on the cross at Calvary was that Jesus became sin. He became rape. He became hatred. He became adultery. He became murder. He became abortion. He became genocide. He became racism. He became injustice. He became me. He became you. And God backed off. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? 
has the consequences of your sin and mine. That's the ultimate judgment. And Jesus Christ doing this dance of death became sin. The Son of God was forsaken that we might be forgiven. Substitution. Jesus pushed in front of us in the line. Excuse me, Father. Uh, I'll take this one. Whew. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says this. Peter, of course, the father of the church, appointed by Jesus to head up the church. Peter himself had denied Jesus, had failed. He knew his strength and he knew his weakness, just like you and me. But Jesus wasn't perturbed. He appointed Jesus as the head of the church, uh, Peter as the head of the church. Peter's put it this way he said, He, that's Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Die to sins. Live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Substitution. Substitution. Incredible thing. So how should we respond? You know, there's nothing wrong with questions. If the Son of God can ask a question, so can we. And very often the world portrays the church as a bunch of people who put their brains on a shelf, who have no questions, no doubts. It just ain't true. And if you're a new believer, somebody who's standing, as it were, on the brink of belief, uh, of belief, maybe you're standing behind a line wondering whether to take a step across it. But what holds you back is that those questions that you, you don't see it as clearly as Richard and Tara do, or, or the rest of the team, or Chris Lane, of course, he's all got it together, hasn't he? Maybe there's still issues there that you're wrestling with, things you don't understand, things that trouble you and perturb you. Well, if you're in that place, let's call you a seeker. If you're a seeker, it's time to take a step of faith. It is time to take a step of faith. You know, it sounds like a foreign thing, but actually we exercise faith through, during ev the course of every day of our life. We, we, we couldn't live if we didn't exercise faith. We, we, you know, we couldn't, you know, when you turn the television on, you don't know how it works, you don't want to know. You just believe it will work when you flick the switch. You wouldn't get in a car, a bus, a train, a plane if you didn't have some faith that actually heavier than air aeroplanes would stay up in the air sufficiently long enough to get you to Lanzarote or wherever it is you're going. We exercise faith in all sorts of ways. So why is this so difficult? Why is this so strange? 
Trust God. It's, it's time to take a step of faith. And maybe this morning is that morning when you actually say, right, I, I don't know it all and I, I barely know what I'm doing, but something inside me is wanting to get back into God. Well, Jesus is the way. And if there wasn't something else, one more thing I wanted to do this morning, I would say to you, let's, let's, let's have an evangelistic meeting now. Let's have you come up and let's give our lives to Christ. But listen, you don't need me to do that. But what I would ask you to do is this morning, don't go away. Miss the moment, but this morning at the end of the service, come down to my right, your left, and the prayer ministry team will pray with you. Just ask Jesus to forgive your sin, to step in front of you in that line of judgment and say, Father, this one's mine. I'm picking up the tab for this little one behind me. Don't miss this moment. So if you're a seeker, it's time to take a step of faith. But I also wanted to speak this morning to those of us who are followers. Because you know, some, sometimes I see this and it, it's beginning to perturb me. Sometimes even with faith, life happens. And it's like each incident is another log caught in the, the downstream of that flow of the spirit in your life and then another log comes along and before you know it you've got a log jam and instead of the spirit of God flowing through you've got so many issues with God that actually you're jammed up so many questions you look at the world and you're appalled and you think well if I was God I'd do a darn better job than you're doing it builds up within us and we lose sight of who we are as the people of God. His hands and his feet. We're not called to be observers, judges of, of the world. We're, we are called to be Jesus in the world. A powerful force for radical discipleship, transformation, heralds of the kingdom of God. We don't stand there touting and pouting saying... Oh, well, somebody ought to do something about that. We're the ones that get up on that cross with Jesus, seeking to make it happen. Questions? <laughs> I still have a thousand questions. But I still love him. I can't shake him off. And I've realized that I need sometimes to shake me off. And keep pressing on in. We're going to watch a little film clip now. A thousand questions. And then after that we'll just wind up with a bit of worship. So sit back and ask the Holy Spirit what is he saying to you this morning. In fact, why don't I do that for us? Just close your eyes. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and where we have questions. Lord God, may those questions not disable us. What is it that you are saying to us this morning, Lord God? It may be different for each and every one of us. But we want to clear out that logjam. We want to step across the line. We want to be a people of faith. Part of the solution, not part of the problem. So come Holy Spirit.